0: We do, Lord, confess that Christ is Lord. We praise you for the revelation that you have entrusted to us to point us to Christ, crucified and risen, and that we find as a church life in his name. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ that you draw them to saving faith, even today, for we know that today is a day of salvation. We pray, Lord, for those of us who know you and walk with you in fellowship. May we be convicted of sin. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of your truth. Help us to put our Bibles together and to understand the revelation that you've left for us as a a body of believers. And Lord, may we live out the truths that we here see. Only as you come and teach Holy Spirit Can we learn what we need to learn here? We invite your presence. We pray that Christ would be magnified. We pray, Father, that you would work for the glory of your name among us now as we come to the Word of God and consider it. As we've sung these truths, help us now to see and hear from you in your Word where we ground these truths and where we come to know you until we meet you face to face. We come in that spirit and pray that you would answer this cry of our heart. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. God is never irrelevant. God always reigns sovereignly over every moment of history and every detail of our lives. For this reason, believers need never despair no matter what takes place in our lives, and unbelievers need beware. I say beware because wherever God is dismissed as irrelevant, where His sovereignty is scoffed at, there He is certain to contend for the glory of His name. And when God contends for His glory, false gods get crushed. Imagine that you come upon a creepy man talking to two young children in a park and you overhear him saying breathing is irrelevant people think breathing's necessary but it's really not let me show you just put this shrink wrap over your head and in five minutes i'll show you that breathing you can actually live without breathing what are you going to do you jump into action immediately and you contend for the necessity of oxygen out of love for those children And you do whatever you can to stop that creepy guy. Think of that, the necessity of air. And know that with far more zeal and urgency, God contends for his name as the very wellspring of life. But there's often a wrinkle or two in his approach. Wrinkles that defy expectation. Often we find these twists of plot utterly delightful. At other times, particularly when it touches our lives, these twists confuse us and even grieve us. So as certain as we can be that God is always relevant... We can be just as certain that God will never fit into the box of our expectations as He asserts this reality, as He continues to contend for the glory of His name. Our sovereign God is quite happy to color outside the lines as He steers the course of salvation history. And this leads us back to our survey of the life of Elijah and our consideration of 1 Kings chapter 17 today. Before we delve into 1 Kings, this, uh, let, let me just review several of the major background pieces just to review, we noted this last week, but in a, in a summary way, remember we have to bring to the text of 1 Kings, theocracy, that God rules in covenant over his people, Israel. Then, monarchy. God always designed monarchy to function over Israel, but we know of Israel's rebellion against God. But nonetheless, the kings rule Israel as mediators of God's covenant with his chosen people. The king was to study the covenant. He was to know God's word. He was to mediate that word to the nation. And the kings that did that well are commended in the account of the kings in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Those that did not were seen as evil, were noted as evil. We know the monarchy itself was divided in 931 B.C. as Israel divides into two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom of Israel in which there was never a single good king. All of them lived in unfaithfulness to God. In the southern kingdom, it was more mixed results. There were some who were faithful kings and were commended. There were others who were unfaithful. But as we focus on the life of Elijah, we're looking at the northern kingdom. Fourth idea is idolatry. Polytheistic worship influences God's people in the land. It corrupts the reign of many of these kings. And then there is prophets heralds of God's truth to kings and to God's people, calling them to fidelity to the covenant. So some of the kings were doing the job they should, others were not, but the prophets could always come in and proclaim what the word of the Lord was and how the king needed to correct the direction of of the nation. Remember the court jesters that we talked about last week from European history, they had the, the freedom to come into the king and say the things that no one else could say because they couched it in humor. Well, the prophets have that sort of access to the kings. I mean, it might cost them their life to speak the truth, but everybody understood a prophet had the right to come into a king, to before a king, and to make known the covenant of the Lord. It was not humorous, it was a call to fidelity to what God had revealed. So we return then to the rule of King Ahab over the northern kingdom of Israel. And under Ahab's rule, Israel prospered physically. This was due in part to his marriage to Jezebel, the daughter of the pagan king-priest Ethbaal of Sidon. So on the north coast, north of Israel, is, is the Phoenician kingdom of Sidon and Tyre, those major cities, places of great wealth, generated great wealth. And so Ahab marrying Jezebel, the daughter of the king-priest Ethbaal, was really profitable for Israel financially. So as we come to this place in time in the book of 1 Kings, Ahab's rule is very prosperous Physically. So picture Ahab in his wealthy palace in Samaria, or his other palace in Jezreel, due in part to Jezebel's influence. Yahweh was widely viewed in Israel at this time as utterly irrelevant. Ahab and Jezebel were on an all-out mission to utterly extinguish the knowledge of Yahweh in Israel. This was their agenda, and they were winning. The moral gloom was gathering. Faith in God was like a flickering candle in the wind. Would it go out? Would it burn out? Would it be lost? God was irrelevant. This is the message that was said, that was spoken day after day. Baal ruled Israel now. In the midst of that account, a prophet appears out of nowhere in Ahab's luxurious court and we find in this text of scripture in chapter 17 of first kings that God begins the battle with Baal on a very low level in very small places he demonstrates his superiority his supremacy God is sovereign over nature we find in verses 1 through 7 in the life of Elijah and we'll review here verse 1 at some length and then move forward. But we read in verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now we expect some introduction, some genealogical background of the like, but absolutely nothing. It's almost with, with sudden Surprise, shocking suddenness that Elijah is just standing there in Ahab's palace as far as the text is concerned. He's like the Melchizedek of prophets there in Ahab's court, but serving a higher throne, he makes clear here. His name, in fact, Elijah means my God is Yah or Yahweh, the true God of Israel. That is my God. He's coming into the palace with that name. And with the audacity to speak to the king and say, I come as a representative of the Lord that you are utterly dismissing. Now remember, he hails from the Transjordanian region of Gilead, a word that means rugged. So Gilead, picturing again, it's wild, it's unsettled remote, a region of fields and forests and rugged mountain peaks and sharp, jagged valleys. There were no walled cities in this wilderness. It was the haunt of marauding Bedouins and nomadic tribes. We learn elsewhere that Elijah clothed himself in an animal skin mantle and a leather belt in contrast to the woven linens, the fine clothing of Ahab's palace. So to change the picture just a bit, uh, picture a disheveled dairy farmer in his grimy work clothes, dusty boots, and tattered cap. And he strides to a table in a fancy hotel restaurant and announces to the President of the United States that he has a message from God. I'm sure in Ahab's court they looked around and said, Who let this guy in? He is definitely out of place. This uncultured prophet from the rugged ravines of Gilead entering the opulent palace of King Ahab announcing that God will extend a drought in Israel for three years. It's gone on for six months. Things are really bad. And the prophet says it's going to get a lot worse. So those heavier rains, called the former and the latter rains, two seasons of rain that were utterly essential for crops, and then the dew, which would have included the drizzle and light rain that had to come between at just the right time for the crops to grow, it's not going to be there. Now, we have to see in this and understand in this that Baal is seen as a god of fertility. Baal is the god of... Who controls rain? Baal is the one to whom we sacrifice so that our crops grow. And Elijah walks into that court where God is seen as utterly irrelevant and says, The God of nature, the creator and sustainer of all things, has determined that you're not going to see rain for three years. And it's actually at my command, he says as a representative of God's court. Ahab was miserably failing to honor the covenant and God would contend for his name in Ahab's court. This is the heart of God toward Israel. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God wants to supply. He wants to give in connection to the blessings of the covenant. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Notice here, they reject the word of the Lord. It will not hear His word. His word is irrelevant. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I mean, it's, it's like the picture here. Oh, that they would breathe, that they would take air into their lungs, that they would thrive as I have prepared them to thrive. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is God's heart. This is what he longs for. And this is the warning that he offers in the law. The covenant warning of consequences of disobedience and turning from his word. He said, And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed so back to Elijah three years king mark my word and off he went disappearing as quickly as he had appeared can we cannot know why Ahab let Elijah go Ahab may have dismissed him as delusional is as irrelevant as was his God. Or perhaps Ahab was just too stunned to think straight and know what to do, but he's going to spend the next three years trying to capture the guy. Whatever the reason in God's good providence, Elijah is now from this point on a wanted man. He is an enemy of the state. Hey, people are suffering. This is bad, bad news. And children are not eating. And good people are suffering. This man is enemy number one in Israel. What people do not recognize is that God is contending for the glory of his name. And the battle between God and Baal is on. Here in this text, in subtle, small places. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Which is east of the Jordan. So God directs Elijah back to the rugged, remote ter- territory from which he came. And I think the command has a twofold purpose. What's the first is most obvious here hide yourself. He commands him to, to find a place where you hide. He's a wanted man. Ahab and Jezebel will grow increasingly desperate to kill him, and no one's going to find him here. Number two, I think, is and more subtle. Uh, more inferential, but that is judgment. God is withdrawing the prophet, thus withdrawing his word from Israel. The famine of food would be paralleled by a famine of God's word. The man who announces the word of the Lord, we can't find him. He's gone. If we wanted to hear the word of the Lord, we wouldn't know where to find him. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So withholding food from Israel at this time of discipline was not nearly as significant as withholding the word of the Lord from her. She had closed her ears to the truth of God, and now she would hear none. Liberation from the word of God is not freedom, it's hell. One might say, good, the prophet's gone, I don't have to hear what God says anymore, but what that is, is hell. And that will epitomize hell for all eternity. No word from God. Elijah obeys the word of the Lord. See the contrast there. God speaks to him and he obeys. Israel sees God's word as irrelevant, languishes on the verge of death. But for Elijah, heeding the word of the Lord leads to life. Verse 4 You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Well, do we need to say it? God loves the color outside the lines, doesn't he? Unclean birds known for their ravenous unwillingness to part with their food descend send morning and evening to feed Elijah. I don't think that they landed with a medium well-marinated steak in their beaks. I want to believe it wasn't roadkill. But probably small animals that Elijah cooked over an open fire. And we note, we can't really miss the linkage here of God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. Bread, meat, and water. In a rugged area... God sustains his prophet in a unique way. And Elijah's really in great shape. I mean, he's relaxing here at this wonderful little campsite nestled along a babbling brook. You don't even have to work for your food. Everything's in beautiful position. Right up until it's not. Verse 7, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Day after rainless day, the brook grew quieter until it disappeared. God continued to prove his sovereign rule over nature and his sovereign rule over Baal, but Elijah was about to become the victim of friendly fire, as were all of God's people. Obeying God's word, we learn, can lead to prosperity. When we obey the word of God, we are spared from much evil. Much good can come into our lives when we obey the word of the Lord. But let's remember this, Eden Baptist Church obedience to the word of the Lord is never a guarantee of prosperity, it's never a guarantee of ease. Sometimes God calls us into very hard situations, it's still his word. And so, as we move forward, we find God sovereign over dearth as he continues to lead and provide for Elijah. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. I mean, widow, raven, (laughs) take your pick. That's basically the same thing. Again, God coloring outside of the lines. This is not... 21st century America, well, this is, this in the book is not 21st century America. Widows don't just go out and find a job. They were at the very bottom of the financial scale. They lived hand to mouth, and many of them spent their days very hungry. A widow will feed you there. And coloring outside the lines as we continue to think of it, Zarephath is the home, just the irony, it's the home of Jezebel. This is just a few miles from her, where her dad set up his priesthood. And so God does not sustain his prophet in Israel, but he relocates Elijah to Baal's turf. This is Baal land where he's sending Elijah. So those, those three ideas... It's Jezebel's place. It's Baal's place. And he's going to go there to a widow who's going to sustain him in the midst of great dearth, a drought. Verse 10 So he arose and went to Zarephath. What is he going to do? He's going to do what God tells him to do. It's a long walk, probably completed at nighttime to avoid detection. So he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there, gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. A little water. Yikes. I mean, at at this time, that had been like liquid gold. But bring me a little water. It's a bold request, but she yields. Verse 11, as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I mean, the, the water's a tough request, but this, I, I really don't have it. This is my situation. And Elijah, verse 13, said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Now, we need to connect this to verse 9. This might have missed us, but notice verse 9 at the end. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So she too is responding to the word of the Lord. It's not a man just showing up all of a sudden saying, give me all of your things, turn over your life to me, but she has heard a word from the Lord that this man will come and that she was commanded to feed him. So she's got a choice here. I say the word of the Lord is irrelevant, I'm not going to do that, that's ridiculous, or she's going to obey. Elijah assures her along the way that all will be well. It's a call to faith, a call to trust this word from the Lord that she received. Verse 9, notice verse 14, For thus says the Lord, Elijah encouraging her, The God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And again, we witness obedience to God's command. It's reasonable. I mean, it's faith. She's got to trust God. She's letting all of her food go. But she's heard a word from the Lord. It's a call to obedience. The prophet backs it up, verse 14, and then verse 15, she obeys. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jug of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. I believe that what this means is that every day, a sufficient amount of flour and olive oil appeared. So it was a day-by-day miracle, the widow and Elijah believing God's promise, and day-by-day God proved faithful. There's a principle here. One commentator has caught it so well with this phrase. We need to understand this relationship with the God that we serve. He says so often to us, and indeed ultimately of our life, he says this, Give me everything you have, and I'll give you everything you need. Give me everything you have, and I'll give you everything you need. Hold on to your life, Jesus put it, squeeze it for all it's worth, and you'll lose it. But the call of God to his people is let go of your life and you'll gain it. Give me your life and you'll never be in need again. It takes faith to believe that. I don't believe this woman was a believer in God yet. And I say that because of verse 9. Back in verse 9, again, somewhat subtly, um, I'm sorry, I have verse 9. Verse 12 is what I mean. Verse 12. She says to Elijah, As the Lord your God lives. We don't want to make too much of the simple word your but I I think in this case, it's right to note that. The Lord your God. We can also assume that Elijah taught her the truth about God as he lodged at her home for an extended period of time. And so I think she's coming to the Lord and to know him, become one of his people as a Gentile. Maybe not there yet, but Wow, let's stop and think of her spot. I mean, we did that with Elijah. He was just really in wonderful shape in this little campground until his world fell apart with the brook. She's in wonderful shape too, is she not? What a blessing for her. This prophet comes, a man of God, teaching her about the true God, and she doesn't even have to work for food. It just is there every day. She has it really good. Right up until the moment that she doesn't. Where God then demonstrates that He is sovereign not only over dearth, but over death. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. It's a gentle way of saying her son died. We don't live without breath in us. And his death made utterly no sense. And so her grief is compounded by her stunned confusion. If God provided food to sustain her son's life, why snuff it out now? Imagine a a, a young boy who falls desperately ill and is rushed to the hospital and he's in ICU for a month. And his life hovers on life uh, between life and death. And all sorts of efforts are made to spare his life. And finally, he begins to recover. And after a month in the hospital, with great rejoicing, it's the day to go home. And the nurses and doctors line the hallway and cheer. And they give him balloons to take out. And he goes outside. And as he's walking with his mother toward the car in the parking lot, a car hits him and he dies. Imagine the grief in that situation. To lose a child, one of the deepest griefs human beings can ever know. But now it's compounded by the utter confusion. Why all this effort to spare the son and he dies? Just to take that story, give us just something of a sense of what's in this woman's heart. It's completely inexplicable. God gave us food to sustain our life, to sustain my son's life. Why take it away? Verse 18, And she says to Elijah in her grief, What have you against me, O man of God? I mean, why did you even show up? Food's one thing, my son. What do you have against me? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. That's all that's happened here. Why? What is God doing in this moment? She's not seeing the end of the story. In this moment, it's utterly unimaginable. And you've been there, right? I've been there. We come to this place at times in our lives. We know her dilemma. God pours out His blessing upon us. We rejoice. We see His hand so clearly. We rejoice to walk with God and see His blessing and then something happens. Something horrible happens. It makes no sense to us and our faith gets stretched to the breaking point. God will always wean us off the idea that if we walk with him in obedience, he'll make our lives easy. He'll pour out one blessing upon another. If that's the equation, then what we very quickly do as his people is fall in love with his blessings. But for reasons that only God understands, he takes the life of this boy, and God's not finished with her. Verse 19, He said to her, that is Elijah to the woman, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he, Elijah, lodged and laid him on his own bed. The upper chamber likely on the roof of her house accessed by an outside staircase. This was just the normal way of building homes in that day and we would assume that's what's happening here. Elijah takes the corpse there apparently to get alone with God in a season of prayer. What he does next is very odd to us but he carried, he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He takes up here... Her cry. It's raw, it's honest, it's passionate prayer. Elijah takes up the pain that she is feeling and pleads her case to the Lord. I don't get it either, Lord. I don't understand this. Why would this be the case? You've spared this man's life, this boy's life. Why take it away? Then, verse 21, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The best we can tell about stretching himself upon him is, was a symbolic act of life on death. And so the prayer is, God, allow my life to be matched by his life. Something along those lines. In verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived It's a powerful statement. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Throughout the entire narrative, what have we been seeing? We'll come back to this in a moment. But what have we been seeing? We see God commanding and Elijah obeying. If we can say this respectfully, now it's reversed. And God is listening to Elijah. Now, the prayer is, of course, a request, not a demand of God. We don't go there. But nor does Elijah lead an over-the-top show, gathering people to attend his advertised healing service and collecting a large offering afterwards. None of that. This isn't a show. He just earnestly pleads with God to save the child, and God answers his prayer. Verse 23, Elijah had taken the boy from his mother to his room. Now he comes back down and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. I mean, we can't even get close to how she felt. I I don't know, what would that be like? Like, whoa. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The very purpose of miracle is to authenticate the message she gets it. You raise the dead. You are clearly a servant of God and His word is is truth. Remember verse 12, your God. I think likely now she's come to realize who the true God is. She realizes that this miracle authenticates Elijah as his true prophet and God who is utterly trustworthy. But beyond the probable conversion of this Gentile woman, we see certainly vital developments in salvation history here. We see here first, what do we see? We see a precursor of God's saving grace among the Gentiles. Here is a Gentile who's coming to praise the name of God. Secondly, we see here a precursor of Christ's resurrection power. God does not bow the knee to the monster of death but has both the power and the desire to raise the dead to life. This is just an indication of it. It's like a channel is being carved out that's pointing us to the Christ who will show victory over death itself and will be a light to the Gentiles. So This woman undoubtedly thought that the daily miracle of flour and oil was the greatest experience of her life. She probably certainly thought the death of her son was the most severe pain she would ever experience. But the pain of her son's death and the joy of the miracle of provision of food paled in comparison to the brilliance of God's resurrection power. This is a sovereign God. He rules even death. And we should understand that her experience is the experience really of every true child of God. We won't be in this kind of a moment, but we live in this space. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18 reminds us of the trials of this life and where they are leading us. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This slight momentary affliction. The words of a man who'd been left for dead by being stoned. Who had faced scourging from Roman authorities. Who had been imprisoned many days of his life and had to live in the sea to survive during periods of shipwreck, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Phoenician widow had this experience in a very short period of time. For you, it may be your whole life. God doesn't work on our time frame and He doesn't compare situations with one another. He showed her in a very short period of time from the depths of her grief to the ultimate joy of the resurrection of her Son. For us, it may take a lot longer, but may we know that God will deliver. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you imagine that waiting until eternity will dampen the joy that we will experience when God turns every trial that we suffer in this life into eternal joy and glory? The time is not going to reduce the joy. It will only go to build it. If God is sovereign over death, if He is the source of eternal life, is there room for despair when we suffer trials in this life? It hurts. The grief is real. The pain is real. But so is glory. And God just shows us in this very small place with one widow and her son that he reigns sovereignly over death itself. So do not despair. In the midst of disease, as we approach death, As we face death and its pain, all of it will end in glory for God's people. Now, stepping back just for a few moments from the entire narrative, looking at the larger picture and the importance of this narrative, notice first of all the emphasis on the word of the Lord. Certainly you've picked that up at this point, but let me draw attention to it. Verse 2, notice verse 2, the word of the Lord. Verse 5, the word of the Lord. Verse 8, the word of the Lord. Verse 9, I have commanded a widow. The word of the Lord. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 16, the word of the Lord, spoken by Elijah. And the dramatic conclusion verse 24 now I know that you are a man of of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and it is truth so what are we seeing we're seeing the life-sustaining power of the word of God we see these small people, an impoverished widow, a wild mountain man, riveting their lives to the obedience of God's word. They were outcasts, irrelevant, fringe people of no consequence. Yet our God loves to use the weak, doesn't he? He loves to use the impoverished, the despised, the outcasts in order to confound the power brokers, the elitists, the rich and the famous of this world. Who are we In this gathering today, as we listen to the word of the Lord in the culture in which we live, God is irrelevant in America to so many stretches of people and people in power. Let's take heart. God loves to use weak people and to give them life through his word. Let us walk in obedience as Elijah did, as this woman did, and know that the word of the Lord is solid gold. To live against it is to stop breathing. As the followers of Christ, we rejoice that He does not choose many wise according to worldly standards. He does not choose many powerful, not many of noble birth. We should rejoice that God chooses those who are foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He chooses people who are weak in the world's eyes to shame the strong. God chooses people deemed low, people despised by the world. We can rejoice in our irrelevance, knowing that we will boast through all eternity in God's infinite relevance and glory. And what is one of the chief distinguishing characteristics of God's people then? It is obedience to his word as the words of life. It's a second note, and that is that we see here a prophet. Think of it. There's a prophet here who depends wholly on the Lord. A prophet whose food is to do the will of God, so to speak. A prophet who creates food for others by miracle. A prophet who raises the dead. It is clear again that God is carving a path that points the way to the final and ultimate prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read earlier this morning, God provides food for Jesus in the wilderness. Food that He creates for others. As He said, My, will is to, my food is to do the will of My Father. And by miracle, feeding 4,000 and 5,000 bread, As Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, the people say so so similarly to this woman, I quote, "...a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited His people. Indeed, He has visited His people. Preparing us with one such as Elijah, and sending then Christ to fulfill this prophetic office, and to show Himself to be the Messiah." Through the miracles that he performed, he has indeed visited us. And it is vital that we leave this place today trusting in his saving grace. We see in 1 Kings 17, and we could put it this way that we serve a big God who does great things through small people in unexpected ways. This is the God we serve. Our task is to hold on for the ride and to trust Him at His Word for our God is trustworthy. His Word is never irrelevant. Obeying His Word is rather life. Dismissing His voice as irrelevant is a sure path to death. And so, 1 Kings 17, very low, quiet, small places. But it's Yahweh one and Baal zero. And here we go. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we praise you for the prophet who proved himself the Lord of nature when he stilled the sea. We praise you for our great high priest and prophet and king who created food for the hungry and raised the widow's son to life with a word. We praise You that we have come to know the Lord Jesus as the great prophet who saves His people from their sin. Elijah saving himself, Elijah saving a young boy. Elijah, as the story unfolds, saving some of God's people. But we bow before you, Lord Christ, as the Savior of all of your people for eternity. For in your resurrection power, there is resurrection in our future. Those who have come to trust your death in our place, your resurrection power, we find in you our hope in our confidence and in any trial that you design sovereignly for our life, we bow here before you and we ask that you would give us faith and help us to remember that whatever trial and heartache we face, there is glory on the other side. Whether that's in this life or the next, whether you show us that very soon or it takes the rest of our lives. In any event, we trust you And I pray that through our consideration of the text of Scripture today that you will continue to build that faith in us. We bow in awe before your sovereign power and we thank you that you are a great God who works in small places through small people in unexpected ways as you work your way to the day when no one will miss your intervention. The day that you return and that the nations know Christ crucified and Christ risen is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In hope, we live our days in obedience to your word. We pray for the day day that the faith becomes sight. Bring it in your time and way for each of us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.